Today on The Topping Show, Bud Light slashes corporate jobs, Facebook files confirm White House censorship, Elon Musk's friend is suing YouTube creator for showing that he uses bots, FatCon Festival is set for Philadelphia, major companies are firing their chief diversity officers, Dill Mulvaney speaking fees are revealed, DOJ file paperwork for Trump to be indicted on the grounds of attempting to wipe a server, U.S. on track to deliver tanks to Ukraine, SEC rules on businesses reporting cyber attacks, Ford beats their earnings, but not for the EV division because they're still losing money. Harley-Davidson misses their earnings, but their stock still goes up. French's Mustard and Skittles team up for a new flavor. Tupperware stocks skyrockets, and Trader Joe's has yet another recall. All of that and much more on The Topping Show. Thank you everyone for taking the time to tune in today. Today's episode of Topping Show is sponsored by Topping Technologies. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in IT security. Heck, I see their founder at least twice a day. Gotta say, he's quite handsome and brilliant. He, he's me. That, that's a joke. If you're an IT leader or a business owner and need a little assistance, you can reach the team at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Now, going on to the business part of the podcast, you have Ford beating their earnings. But EV is, uh, yeah, of course, it's uh, still losing money. Of course. Now, it looks like for the quarter, Ford reported a top-line revenue of $45 billion, which is an exceptional amount of money. And even better when you consider they actually only expected $40.17 billion. And that's also a 12% improvement from the $37.91 billion it reported a year ago during the same time period. And it's also sequentially higher than Q1's $41.5 billion revenue. Now, they also adjusted a earnings per share, or EPS, of $0.72 cents per share, and they beat their overall 54 cents per set per share that analysts and all the Wall Street analysts were you know, expecting. And they have an adjusted earning before tax of $3.8 billion. So pretty much everyone on Wall Street is ecstatic because if you're a publicly traded company, the number one thing you can do to make everyone beyond euphorically happy is to actually beat their expectations, especially during a contentious economy with 40-year hyperinflation, a lot of uncertainty, and totally speaking, no one I know is buying vehicles, but you know, overall Ford seems to be doing exceptionally well. Now, for its business full year projections, Ford boosted its profits guidance for Ford Blue and Ford Pro, but they actually increased the loss projection for Ford Model E. Now, Ford Blue is the traditional Ford company that you know and love. You know, they, they make the Mustang, they make the F-150, the traditional company, Ford Blue. Now, the other division they created was Ford Commercial. Now, those are like the F-450s, the really large, as it might sound and entail, commercial trucks. So the ones that are much, much larger, more durable. They have contracts with, you know, a myriad of other applications besides civilian use. And then they also have their third, and um, right now, the most painful part of the company. That is going to be their EV division, which, of course, most companies will lose money for quite some time when you have a new a new project or a new division because you have research and development, you have up, you know, upkeep. Now, in terms of the breakdown, it's quite astronomical. You had $8 billion EBIT, earning before income tax, for Ford Blue during this quarter. That's quite, quite, quite good considering the last quarter was $7 billion. Now, interestingly enough, they also had $8 billion earning before income tax for Ford Pro. So the commercial part of the business is doing great. That's actually up from $6 billion. So commercial Ford is doing great. Ford Blue, which we know and love, good old Ford Mustang, F-150, that's pretty much the not, well, they have some crossovers I'm sure that no one cares about, but say F-150 and the Mustang, like really the heart blood of the company historically and still now. 
so they're doing great but it looks like their analysis for Ford the the Model E unit which a part of me just thinks they use that just to keep it away from Tesla they had the trademark for quite some time and Tesla wanted to do the Model E so Elon could spell out sexy when you look at all the models which moderately comical and pretty uh, B plus remarking pretty unique but of course, Ford Model T is what made the company back in the day. So apparently they had the Model E for quite some time. So that's why they decided to call their EV division. Now, it's projected their full year loss for the Model E division will be $4.5 billion, which, yes, that, that does sound terrible because it is. They actually only, quote, quote, expected to have a loss of $3 billion. And it's I can't help but think there's got to be a little bit of animus and competition inside of Ford. Because if you're Ford Blue, so you're working on the traditional Ford team, you're making the F-150, which historically speaking is the most successful pickup in history by number of units sold. So you're working on that. You have someone who's working on the Mustang, which iconic American muscle, good old stick shift and a V8, which is the most euphoric experience you can possibly have in a vehicle, which is why I recommend everyone should have a stick shift. Good old three pedals can't be beat. But I digress. If you're making all that, your company's making the cash, the profit. And then you have Johnny over in the EV division, and they're the ones that's currently anchoring the company to the bottom of the ocean, fiscally speaking. Now, that's there has to be a little bit of animus, and I can't help but think, what's that doing for the Ford culture? We're gonna have the different divisions, and it'll be interesting to see. Now, of course, you know, people ask, well, why is it why is the situation even worse than you projected? And we also lowered the cost for these vehicles. They're also, if you drive past a Ford dealership, um, I can't help but notice when I drive past them, there is a whole lot of those Emok bastardized Mustangs. Now, it has nothing to do with the traditional Mustang, the good old American muscle car. It's the Emok Mustang or whatever, Mustang E. They pejoratively stole the name because it was a very attractive name. Everyone knows it. And they made an electric crossover little thingamajig. The lots are full, packed to the brim with those things. They're not moving like they used to. So that's got to be concerning for many of these Ford executives, or one would think. Now, it looks like when asked for comment, they said, quote, the pricing, environment, discipline, investments for new products and capacity, and other costs. Ford also expects to reach a 600,000 EV unit um, production running rate during 2024, instead what they originally projected of 2 million annual run rate for EV vehicles. So despite what everything you hear and what many of these companies are telling you, the EV adaptation is taking a little bit longer than expected, and I suspect there's going to be a little more pushback on the consumer base as well as you have cars that now cost, people are financing the cars like 80 plus months, astronom an astronomical amount of time. And they're becoming more, almost as expensive as a house or they're actually more expensive than what a house used to be thanks to inflation and a couple other factors. But if you're going to go out and buy a vehicle, personally speaking, I'd rather have a vehicle that lasts 25 plus years than a million miles, which is why I buy a Honda. And it also has three pedals, which can't be beat. A lot of people cannot afford to buy an EV vehicle that's basically disposable. Those things don't last 5, 7, 12 years. There's no way. With the current technology we have, it's not going to happen. That's not saying that tomorrow we might not have a new battery technology that's even more efficient, a little bit more reliable. But in terms of my three cents, it used to be two cents. I should charge four because of inflation, but I'm a generous, I'm a generous man, so it's three cents today. My three cents is these people just can't swallow that pill of buying such an expensive vehicle that's currently basically just disposable especially when you have all this uncertainty of i cannot you have the economy is uncertain you have 40-year hyperinflation it'll be interesting to see how many people continue this adaptation when 
you know, everyone's being stretched thin. They're concerned about their income and time shall tell to see what they do. Other interesting business news, you have Harley Davidson missing the earnings, but their stock is still going up. Now, a little bit of history, which I wish they taught history in public schools, or at least a modicum of accurate history. Not all of them are bad, but you know, many of them seem to be. Now, Harley Davidson was founded in 1903, which again, I know math scores are they're at an all time low in the United States. No matter, even though we're spending even more, 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 more money, somehow it just doesn't fix the problem. I'm sure the teenagers unions have their best interests at heart. They would never do anything uh, selfishly. Now, a little bit of math, they were founded in 1903. That's 120 years ago. They're a staple of the Americana. Actually founded over in the good old state of Wisconsin, or Wisconsin, as some people might say. It's, uh, it's basically like Diet Canada. It's way up there, way, way, way up there. Now, it's founded by William Harley, Arthur Harley, Walter Davidson, Arthur Davidson, and Will Davidson. So I butchered the middle, the middle name is Arthur Davidson. So just William Harley and the others were the Davidsons. And it's been a staple of Americana for years. Well, obviously 120 years, but they're in a little bit of a pickle. You kind of have the same situation with Buick and Cadillac where most of the customers are dying. So they actually started up a separate company. I believe it's called Lightning or something cliche like that for EV bikes. Didn't really work out. So they divested it. It looks like they're starting to perhaps look at more of an internal development for the own EV line. But the big thing that makes it Harley Harley is the noise. Automotive companies famously trademark the noise of their exhaust notes. Exhaust note is, well, it's pain to me that um, EV enthusiast, well, let's be clear, the I don't know if EV enthusiast is a thing, but people who only know EVs, it's like a musical instrument, an exhaust note. It's a beautiful, unique sound of a vehicle accelerating most often accentuated during a downshift in a corner as you're driving a three-stick or a three-pedaled manual transmission vehicle. But I digress. There's a little bit of a pickle because I don't know how much the brand translates to EV. Their customers are getting older and there's ever more competition. I mean, Kawasaki is another famously good brand and they just get faster, faster, and faster. You have Honda making motorcycles as well. There are a lot of competition these days. You got Yamaha. Yamaha was famously in the John Wick, I believe, four movie brilliant product placement by the way if you want to put a motorcycle in a movie put Keanu Reeves on it he's a motorcycle enthusiast that's part of one of his hobbies so it'll be interesting to see there's a lot of confidence behind the brand even though they just did a branding deal with Bud Light which obviously didn't work out so well because controversy there and controversy while it's good at selling news it's usually not the best for selling products and brands because just the connotation may people don't want to be involved with those conversations so It'll be interesting to see people still have confidence in the brand. What will their next steps be to adapt or perhaps come out with more product lines as they continue to try to evolve? As I say, time shall tell. Other interesting business news, you have French's launching a Skittle flavored after themselves. So this is, of course, it's a fun, cute little marketing thing. Now, French's is a large, of course, you know, mustard. Well, they make many things, but they're known for mustard. Now, it looks like French's and Skittles have teamed up in honor of National Mustard Day, which I, of course, didn't even know that was a thing. That It's astronomical how many days. Are, there's never just a day, like an Andrews Tuesday. There's always a specific day for something. So apparently there's a National Mustard Day. They're going to produce the first ever limited edition French's Mustard Flavored Skittles. Which, incidentally, probably tastes just as good as regular Skittles with their high fructose corn syrup and more chemicals than you possibly pronounce. But I digress. Kids love them, I guess. Now... They say that the brand are going to give away fun size packets and will be given away for free while supplies last uh, at some online sweepstakes and in-person pop-up events. 
So it's one of those hilarious things where, from a marketing perspective, I give them, I, I, I give them a B plus, A minus. It, it's one of those cute little things where I can't imagine it costs too much for them to synthesize some chemicals to make it taste like French mustard. You just take regular mustard and you make it a little more snotty, you know, and put a white flag around it. But I digress. I would think the R&D would be pretty low to get some more chemicals in there. And then the packaging might be a little bit more, but it gets headlines and is a, a funny little thing. Of I think the saving grace is it's not a permanent thing. So you have corrupt collectors that go after it. You'll have some people that just like the shock value and it'll get some headlines and it'll be interesting to see. It might be a good way to push more high fructose corn syrup out to product to people because they don't, you just can't get enough of that stuff. So might even increase their sales as well overall. As I always say, time shall tell. Now, going on to more businesses, you have Tupperware. Their stock has skyrocketed for reasons. Now, it looks like Tupperware's brand cork stock climbed 46.6% last Wednesday and shares the, the, it just went up more and more and more. Now, if you look at it overall past couple weeks, it looks like it's all mostly in parts, partially because of forgiveness from the actual lenders. Now, they were in deep financial issues because people are buying less of the product. And actually I have the article that's saying, quote, amid its surging share price, the company's market capitalization hit $84.51 million last Thursday. On July 7th, when Tupperware said that it had entered a waiver agreement with some of its creditors, the company's market cap hovered around 33 million. So in one week, their stock skyrocketed 177.8%, which Heinz, investing is always hindsight 2020. I reported on this, I believe two or three weeks ago, talking about just the history of Tupperware. They've been around forever, but they weren't really growing or adapting to the new market. Also to their detriment, they make a great product. You never really have to buy another one of them. I still have the same Tupperware my parents bought me in college. I use them once a day for the, some of the stuff I make. So I've been using them once a day for like 10 plus years. They still work. They're darn near bulletproof. And also I appreciate made in the USA. So they have a little bit of a detriment where it's good that the price lasts so long, but they're not, in my opinion, they're not able to expand to more areas of the kitchen. They have many things, but at the end of the day, the core competency, the, you know, the major food containers, it's really, you know, 80, 20 rule. That's gotta be 80% of their sales come from 20% of the products. That's usually for most businesses, most sales organizations. That's a good rule of thumb. And in order to really grow as a brand and just increase this ever competitive market with all these containers, it'll be interesting to see what's the long-term growth. Is it just an uptick in the stock because everyone has got nostalgia and they think this new debt settlement will help them and put them towards the path forward. But I think they probably need a little bit of new leadership or they need a different approach to really go to the next level, so to say. This is this is great short-term short -term news because it saves a brand but it'll be interesting to see what the long-term ramifications are of these business moves. Now, going over to the culture part of the podcast, you have Bud Light slashing corporate jobs. The boycott is working. So contrary, contrary to pretty much every mainstream media outlet saying, oh yeah, you know, this is ridiculous. It's just a couple bad weeks. You know, there's, there's no teeth to this bite, so to say. I mean, CNN and the, a couple of those major news outlets said, oh yeah, so they're just losing a couple of their... Uh, I, actually, some of them actually, who was it? Was it Garth Brooks? There's a couple, um, what's nice way of saying hypocritical or two-faced? Oh, I, I could just use those words. They uh, actually pejoratively called their fans rednecks for supporting the boycott. When in reality, I know a lot of people, both on the left and the right and the middle, who are actually participating in the boycott. 
Now, personally, I've been involved in boycott for 10 plus years because I don't buy most beer, to be honest. I prefer spirits when the occasion calls for. Although I did purchase my first case of Yangling ever, partially thanks to all the advertising online, the reverse advertising of Bud Light, that brand of Yangling is rising up exponentially and got my attention. And it, I appreciate the fact they are still family owned, been the oldest brewery in the United States, still in existence. And I appreciate that and I like to support family owned businesses. Now, it looks like Bud Light week after week has lost about 30% of their sales. They had one week where they, they quote unquote only lost 23%. And of course, all the news outlets go, oh yeah, the, the boycott's done. Look at that, only 23% less compared to the same time period week last year. Oh no, it's, it, I suspect, especially with the football season and the sports balls being thrown, I think the boycott is only gonna get worse. Of course, we'll see if I'm right or wrong. Now, in terms of the market share and all the things moving around, you have Yaling, Coors Light, and Miller Light. They're actually increasing 25%, 21.6%, and 16.9% respectively. Imagine having a 25% bump in your sales and you're not doing anything. Yaling is literally just not getting involved in politics. All of their, don't get me wrong, they make a great product, they have great people there, but this big bump in sales is just them not playing politics and just putting out a product. It's a brilliant thing for them to be doing. Now, in terms of the Bud Light ramifications from their ginormous business blunder of the century, uh, let me know if you think it'd be interesting to nominate a business blunder of the week or the month or the year. We, we report that daily because there are so many, but it'd be interesting to see. Maybe send uh, Brandon Whitworth a trophy if he sells a job by that near. He's the current CEO of uh, Bud Light. Now, getting down to the, to the quantifications of this Bud Light blunder, they are having to lay off nearly 400 corporate office jobs. Now they're claiming it's only it, they're claiming it's less than two percent of its workforce and. The, the plus side is they are saying that it will not affect frontline workers such as warehouse staff and brewery staff. Now, that being said, it will affect those jobs eventually. And while I do not revel, I mostly don't revel when people lose their jobs. Well, I don't revel in the fact when people lose their jobs when there's no fault of themselves. And especially in this case, if you were on a brewer at Bud Light, that'd be quite sad because it wasn't your decision to make that marketing business blunder. It was someone in the, some disconnected person in the office called Alyssa Heiderschild, who, ironically enough, was a frat girl. She then proclaimed that frat boys were bad for the brand and wanted to shift away. And she was the one that everyone credits for the, the business blunder of the century of hiring Dylan Mulvaney, who, again, average fan of Dylan's is about 15 years old because it's a TikTok influencer and a trans influencer. And, of course, that was on April 1st, which perhaps is a joke of the century. But it's one of those things where that's where the boycott really began. So it looks like most of these jobs are actually in marketing. And it looks like geographically, they quote, they noted that these layoffs are quote unquote restricted and they will eliminate corporate and marketing roles in major US offices, including St. Louis, New York, and LA. Now, in terms of the demographics or geographics of your users, I would guess most users or fans of Bud Light usually, I'd say on average more maybe Midwest folks. I don't know how many fans of them are in Los Angeles, that almost seems a little disconnected for the brand, for them to be based there. I know California is, the, at least for automotive, they're the 10th largest um, consumer base on the planet, so I would assume it would be a similar large user base for beer, uh, beer as well. But it is interesting to have, you know, what people think is a good old American beer company also having offices in there as well. Now, when asked for comment, Anheuser-Busch CEO Brendan Whitworth, and, and former CIA operative, literally, look him up on LinkedIn, but um, he actually said, quote, 
While we never take these decisions lightly, we want to ensure our organization continues to be set for future long-term success." Unquote. He further explains, quote, These corporate structure change will enable all our teams to focus on what they do best, brewing for everyone. Unquote. Now, of course, if this was really true, they would have never got involved in politics or anything controversial. It perhaps was the easiest brand to embody and grow because all they have to do is put out a commercial once or twice a year with a little, what is it, the Bud Light or the um, Anheuser-Busch little horse pulling a little, uh, what do you call it, a little case of beer behind it? The little Clydesdale horses? That's all they had to do. Put an American flag in the background, say something about patriotism. That formula worked for decades. And yet they decided to embrace controversy and alienate a good part of their customer base. And by the way, they also alienated people on the left side of the political aisle as this has become a political issue because after the controversy first started, they didn't quote unquote stand with Dylan Mulvaney. So you actually have gay bars and holding companies who are actually banning Bud Light as well. So they joined the boycott. So people on the left, people on the right, and people in the middle, they're all joining the boycott. For the first time in 20 years, they're not the number one selling beer in the, North, in, in the United States. They were supplanted by Modelo which in the United States is actually owned by a separate brand, by a separate company by the name of Constellation Brands. Globally, yes, they own Modelo, but in the United States, if you're buying Modelo, you are accurately supporting the boycott if that's of your belief system. Now, this actually happened twice now. So I believe it was May as well as June. So that's two months in a row Modelo has beat Bud Light. First time in 20 years. Now, reports many show Bud Light now at number 14th beer in the United States by sales figures. It'll be interesting to see. I suspect 4th of July was not a good, again, a lot of this sales data is indirect. So as opposed to a business model where you go to apple.com, you buy an iPhone, they didn't know how to quantify that data like that because you went right to their website. In this case, you have Anheuser Bush Bud Light. They brew it, they sell it to the distributor, the distributor sends it across the US. Sometimes they sell it to a grocery store, the grocery store sells it to you. Then you have the restaurant model as well. So it's an indirect sales model with more steps and more complexity, so the data is a little delayed. Needless to say, I don't suspect their sales figures to go up anytime soon because they're also not addressing the issue at all. And to the CEO's, not credit, but in from his perspective, he can't say anything because if he takes a stand either way, he'll immediately alienate even more people. So they literally are stuck between a rock and a hard place. Of course, they put, it them to, they put themselves there. It is even more, not ironic, fascinating perhaps, or um, interesting, amusing, just two or three days ago, the CEO of InBev, so that's, you know, it's Anheuser-Busch InBev, is the CEO for the European division, is based out of Belgium, which they don't just make waffles and great guns. They also apparently make great, well, I was going to say great beer, mediocre beer. They, they're a holding company. They make lots of beers. But that CEO said, oh, yeah, we're, we're not worried about this. Uh, you know, it's not that big of a deal, this little, you know, little campaign, little business blunder. It was just, it was just one can, which they, they keep desperately saying one can. However, when asked for comment, Dylan actually said it was a campaign, which, of course, would be more than one thing, which is why Dylan posted multiple pictures with the product. So take what you want for who you want to believe there, but it's one of those things where the situation only seems to be getting worse and worse, and I don't see them coming out of this tailspin anytime soon. It'll be interesting to see, but right now, again, I'm not a financial advisor. I don't have it. But when it comes to Bud Light stock, it's also, you know, they lost $28 billion in stock valuation since April 1st. That's when the marketing issue began. I don't see anyone investing in them anytime soon. Time, of course, usually shall tell. Now, 
Other interesting cultural news, you have Facebook. Their files are being released, and they show that the White House was, yes, of course, in direct communication and actively censoring U.S. citizens. Now, this is actually brought to us thanks to, I believe he's a senator out of Oklahoma, not Ohio. So it's Representative Jim Jordan. And here are a couple of quotes where he brought up. So he says, quote, Never before released internal documents subpoenaed by the Judiciary Committee prove that Facebook and Instagram censored posts and changed their content moderation policies because of unconstitutional pressure from the Biden White House. During the first fa- half of 2021, social media companies like Facebook faced tremendous pressure from the Biden White House, both publicly and privately, to crack down, crack down on alleged quote-unquote misinformation. Now, he further says, in April 2021, a Facebook employee circulated an email for Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and Chief Operating Officer Sheryl Sandberg, writing, quote, We are facing continued pressure from external stakeholders, including the Biden White House, to have posts removed. Now, in these little Twitter files, he actually does release physical copies. Oh, not physical, it's digital. But he released copies of the emails where they say, literally have correspondence between the White House and the executives at Facebook to censor everything from people saying their side effects of the shot to simple memes where they actually just had a meme where it's like, you know, that cliche of if you've been affected by asbestos in the past 10 years, you're be, you could be, you're eligible for some uh, settlement, call this lawyer. That won't happen in this case because people who took the poke, they actually signed away all the rights to sue, I believe is actually a waiver. And it was also the Emergency Authorization Act, which is why they use that act to begin with. So it shouldn't be too much of a surprise but it is interesting to see yet another conspiracy theory that was a conspiracy theory yesterday proving to be fact. I can only imagine Alex Jones is reveling in excitement, although we can't know because he's not allowed on Twitter because Elon is not a free speech absolutist, unfortunately. Now, other interesting cultural news, you have Elon Musk, his friend is suing a YouTuber for revealing his bot scam. Now, recently proof was shown by Upper Echelon, which sounds really cool, and it, it's also the name of a handle over on the Twitter's verse, or as they call it now, X. Now, it looks like Upper Echelon showed that Mario Noval intentionally purchased bots to boost his profile on the platform. Now, it is interesting that Elon actually previously bragged about this person getting so much traction and so many people attended Mario's Twitter live share rooms, which is true. If you have, and the more people that like, enter those rooms, the more likely it will be to be suggested on your little right side of the screen when you enter the app or go to the website. So I noticed this person was on that side of the website several times. And interestingly enough, it appears it's just because, oh yeah, they're just buying bots. Now, a specific teammate actually had some uh, text leak. So this is a text exchange between Mario as well as, I believe it was one of his contractors or his marketing directors. And the contractor said, talking about a cease and desist apparently, Contract when this man released a video showing, hey, here's this contract and here's these correspondence between Mario and this company that builds bots. And they actually are programming the bots to have engagements where the bots will like and actually do comments. The contractor, marketing director sent to Mario, quote, we sent him one. Mario's response was, yes, of course. The contractor goes, hmm, think, think it'll make him double, double down to be sure, or TBH as the youth might say. Mario's response was, then I'll take him to court and bleed him financially and force YouTube to remove the, to remove them. The more he does, the more damages he'll owe. So rudimentary speaking, in the text exchange, he's basically admitting he's going to use the lawsuit as a 
a club to basically bludgeon men to death, fiscally speaking, which is true. There is one of those issues where, yes, defamation, defamation, you can't be sued for it if it's true, but you still need to defend yourself. Like pretty much anything in the United States, you could sue anyone for anything at any time. However, whether you'll win it or not, that's another case in and of itself. In this case, this person's still going to have to pay to actually defend themselves. And spoiler alert, lawyers are not cheap. They're pretty darn expensive and they do charge by the hour, which is why I'm always very skeptical of lawyers, especially divorce lawyers, when you hear all the horror stories because they're literally incentivized to drag it out as long as possible. But I digress for the moment. It looks like he's actually, it says he has the potential to sue every YouTuber that reported on this. And even I reported on this a couple weeks ago. Now, the joke is on him because this channel doesn't make any money. We will eventually someday, which is why I especially take, appreciate you taking time to like, subscribe, and comment because that does help the channel grow. And it does take a certain amount of hours washed as well as subscribers to become monetized. But if you try to sue me now, it's jokes on him. He's not getting much. I mean, I'll, I guess I'll get the webcam I bought. But you can't take away my charming personality because that's priceless, some might say. Now, again, Elon, when he bought Twitter, even during the negotiation process, he was fervently against bots because, of course, they artificially boost the platform. And if Elon, I can't help but notice why is Elon, who was previously fervently supporting Mario, he should be coming out right now and saying, this is exactly the kind of crap we don't want on my platform. This is inauthentic. It's manipulative. It, it literally makes everyone look bad. He's going to piss off the advertisers because the advertisers aren't getting the clicks they want or the, the real engagement. Showing an advertisement to a bot doesn't mean anything yet because bots don't have the ability to buy stuff for themselves yet. Perhaps they will as the Terminators rise to take over. But for now, there's not a lot of fiscal incentive to cater to robots or sell them yet. Robot lives matter, some might say. But nevertheless, Elon should be fervently upset and maybe just delete this guy's Twitter account for the Mario guy? because Or X account, whatever you want to call it now. He's breaking all the rules that Elon set out. But I don't know if he's really going to do it. Elon's a busy guy, but he certainly has his favorites of people who enga he engages with on the platform. And hopefully he engages, he enters this, he chimes into this to sell, tell people, hey, this will not be acceptable on this platform. If you buy bots, we will ban you. That's my three. He should definitely, he needs to do that like yesterday. That's just my three cents. It used to be two cents, but with hyper, four year hyperinflation, I got to increase the cost. I should be charging four, but I'm a generous man. Just two, just three cents for my opinion right now. Now, other interesting cultural news, you have FatCon, a festival coming to Philadelphia, which of all the locations pretty, seems pretty apt. Now, this was first reported on a magazine called Eevee or Eevee magazine. And now, of course, this actually isn't a convention to help people improve themselves mentally and physically to incentivize them to maybe get some exercise, eat some, eat a carrot. Um, no, it's quite the, it's the antithesis, it's the opposite. And while we broach the subject, I should say it is quite, it is sad and challenging. Some people do have legitimate medical problems or medications that do make it prohibitive to lose weight. Some people have some physical detriments that are of no fault of their own. And they do struggle with that. That is a thing. However, I see a big distinction between that and people who actually choose life decisions that lead to unhealthy sedentary lifestyles that are not cohesive to a long fulfilling life. You'll die early. It's the number one prevent, the number one preventable, preventable medical issue in the United States all relate to obesity. People can prevent it and live longer. Just eat a salad 
or hit the gym or both the duality now it might not look like it because i'm all suited up as men should always do but i always try to make i don't say i try i do make time to hit the gym usually 4 30 to 6 30 in the morning and i always tell people if i could run a business and still hit the gym anyone can do it literally anyone there's nothing unique about me i just work like hell now going back to this article getting back into the the depths which they're quite deep of the article it actually starts off by saying quote some people are not in love with their body every day but this is the body that they that they exist in unquote and it's actually a quote from one of the the events organizers which you're in love with your body some people are not there there is something to be said of you shouldn't be happy in the body you have you should always strive to be better i'm not saying you should be depressed or angry at yourself but it's something where it's a lost art self-improve real self-improvement not manipulating your mind to think you're good just the way you are reading books going to the gym i digress for now now diving into this deep article it looks like three philadelphia women which of course i, I can't help but think it's hilarious in the united states culturally speaking there's not like a fat man movement where like people are going out of their way to hold rallies and hold picket signs saying you know what about the fat men leave is lizzo the morbidly large uh, large as in famous and physically She's a rapper, and she's very proud of the fact that she's morbidly obese, and she actually tried to make a movement of it. Well, there's not much movement, but it's one of those instances where all the men in her videos were jacked and ripped. If she really believed obesity is beautiful, why not have obese men in your music videos? She didn't. She had ripped guys with six-packs and huge packs. But I digress for the moment. So three Philadelphia women have taken the contemporary wave of authenticity a notch higher by organizing FatCon, a conference tailored for people with a higher-than-average body mass index, as per reports in the Philadelphia Inquirer. It's the first of its kind in conference that aims to communicate that a significant number of Philadelphians are, co are comfortable with their body size and proud of it. Why? Why? There, there is an issue. People are always proud of so many things that they shouldn't be proud of. Just existing isn't something you should be proud of. Going through it a challenge is something to be proud of, but yeah, it looks like Philadelphia has a reputation for the most unhealthy foods. It looks like 68% of, of adults in Philadelphia are overweight or obese, as are 41% of youths between the ages of 6 and 17. That's That should be something the United States focuses on. I mean, even politically speaking, politically spe oh, I was going to say it'd be a smart thing to do politically, but of course... Unfortunately, nowadays, it's usually politicians don't want to do anything when it comes to helping you out or actually giving you good advice. They just want you to be, you know, dependent on the system, in my opinion. That's why if you go to public schools, they don't teach you about personal financing. They don't really teach you how to be healthy or uh, I debate how much value there really is these days. That's why I always implore people when if they have the opportunity and they can private school. Now, it looks like diving into this. Looks like Do Donella Jagman, Andrea Ray, and Keita Harris are the ones pioneering the movement that celebrates body diversity at FatCon. Now, the organizers are apparently striving to make it a judgment-free zone, offering community a spirit among individuals that can feel overlooked due to their size. Unquote. Uh, they're never overlooked due to their size. I, I you see them quite clearly. Now, it looks like they also aim to, pr to provide an alternative perspective to navigate navigate the world fraught with so-called fat phobia which in the united states especially i don't really see where you see fat phobia that's probably not that's probably a clumsy group of words to say i don't see you see 
we all see for ice cream, which is part of the fact or the part of the issue. The ice cream too much. But it's one of those instances where the United States, they actually have office chairs. They're over-engineered to take extra weight and they're wider. You see this at hospitals too with the, um, with the actual wheelchairs. They're wide. I don't see where the fat phobia really is. Now, when we dive in more, it looks like they'll, all, they'll also have a keynote speaker to address whose title is, quote, the fat sex therapist, unquote. Which I, I suppose that's a good way to perhaps exercise, but that's not what they're talking. That's not, that's not really what they're doing about. Now, they did say that there's a fat-friendly fitness class, which I don't know why do they have. If they, it's a It seems like a contradiction. They are extremely proud of the way they are, but they also have a fitness class. Why would you have a fitness class if you're if you're happy just the way you are? I'm. There should be a fitness class there. There should be someone who is encouraging, saying, "Hey, you can be whatever you want to be if you put if you just work if you just put a little more, if you put in effort into most things in life. Over time, you will improve. That's what everyone should. In my opinion, that's what everyone should strive for: is to always just go above and beyond, no matter what you do in life, whether you're sweeping floors in a factory or a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Just work like hell and be the best you can be every single day and your life will get better. Now, it looks like there's going to be a three-part convention. Oh, gee, oh, geez, Louise. They're going to have a annual plus swap. They're going to have a, a second annual plus swap, which is apparently Philadelphia's largest plus-size clothing swap founded by Jagman in 2021. And they're saying that they realize they need to have a larger and inclusive event. And I, this is one of the few times where I know a lot of people in the comments are asking for visuals on the show and I'm looking at some software where we actually put up pictures. It is perhaps best you do not see these pictures because they're quite, um, your eyes won't melt like, a, like in Indiana Jones where, you know, they see the Ark of the Covenant and they, their eyes actually melt. But it's, it's not, perhaps not that bad, but it is uh, quite, quite concerning. Now, in terms of this cultural event also involving politics, it looks like they're going to have some extra speakers. So they're going to have Sony Lee. Uh, again, I'm not intentionally butchering any of these names. Sony Lee Rajwar, who is going to lead the talk on the fat, the fat sex therapist who uses they, wait, they, he pronouns. This is according to one of the Instagram posts from the uh, fat cons Instagram page, which I thought. So I guess men, uh, wait, are people, it's hard to say who's welcome. So I guess if you're just big, you can go. Now, it looks like they're actually going to have a, this is another quote, a super fat, queer, bisec, bisexual, non-binary, what? A super, super fat, queer, bisexual, non-binary therapist. Wait, what? Those, these are all new terms to me, but that seems counterintuitive or counter, and in person, that's apparently the co-founder of Radical Therapy Center, specialized in treating sexual trauma, diet trauma, so sexual trauma, diet trauma, racial or immigrant trauma, South Asian family abuse, and fat positivity healthcare. Now, I have no, I mean, certainly, immigrate, immigrant travel, uh, immigrant, oh, I guess my family, I should give her a call, immigrant trauma, what? Well, and diet trauma, that, that lettuce attacked me, your honor, well, I guess, therapist that iceberg lettuce just came out of nowhere now 
lettuce is usually garbage, just like a filter. I always recommend spinach, but that, that's just my diet personally. But it's also fascinating to see, to see from an American perspective and cultural perspective, if you open up a history book or look at pictures of kids, Americans, even in the 1960s, relatively speaking to now, they were jacked Captain America. I mean, you see playgrounds where kids are on jungle gyms and climbing up things the size of, you know, maybe two Hummers. Just climbing up these raw metal structures. Not a care in the world, just working like hell. And now you have kids with their eyeballs glued to the smartphone, which is an issue in and of itself, my three cents there. But America used to strive to be the best. I mean, a military mantra used to be, join the military to be all you can be. That's not their mantra anymore. Don't get me wrong, I still highly respect the military and those who volunteer for our country. But in the military, they're actually lowering the standards year after year after year. The physical standards are getting so, so small, and Americans can't fight anymore. I mean that both mentally and physically. I believe less than 1% of the U.S. population even qualify to join the military these days. Because they're that out of shape. So I was, it was one of the few th times where I almost don't think it would be, metaphorically speaking, it, to be a national security issue. Because it would be the easiest time to invade the United States. The only reason, the only savior or reason they don't is, thankfully, the United States is one of the most armed populace in the world. And actually, a Japanese general during World War II, when asked why they don't invade the U.S., he famously and prolifically said, quote, it's because there would be a gun behind every blade of grass, unquote. Something to think about. And we also have the military, the military industry. And the U.S. defense contractors are pretty much have the best scientists on the planet in terms of aerospace research development and actual pumping out the pretty much Tony Stark-like products. So... There are a couple reasons why the U.S. is safe from invasion, but from physically speaking, it's one of those things where, what happened? Is it just too much acceptance of everything where you, you can't, people don't even try anymore because people accept them just the way they are? And I'm not saying, I know Bill Burr famously, prolifically, actually is a fan of fat shaming, and his fans have actually improved their lives because of it. Many of them actually write to him saying, hey, you made me, because some people, in terms of motivation, and I think this works especially with men, especially, you see this in football coaches and other other sports balls teams, they do benefit from tough love where they tell you, hey, get your ass off the ground, get up there, run that extra mile, go the extra, you know, do that extra thing, get that pigskin across the, the 40 yard line or whatever the balls go on the sports balls teams. So there are different approaches for different people. But we got to the point where it's almost like everyone's acquiesced to mediocrity. No longer do people want to stay after 5.01 p.m. on a Friday to get their job done or get, get, get push that career to the next level. No longer do people actually eat healthy foods. And don't get me wrong, the food industry has its issues in and of itself. Always read the ingredients on what you're eating. And more often than not, if you can't pronounce it, you should probably think twice and maybe search on the internet what on earth it is. But I really do hope from a cultural perspective, more people push back and say, I want to be better. I want to improve myself physically and mentally. I want to read a book climb a mountain or well, at least maybe just you know walk upstairs instead of taking the elevator it's something that everyone can do just a little bit of effort every single day adds in the aggregate just like saving so if you're trying to save up for a new car or a new toy just put away a little bit of money every single day and eventually that money will grow and eventually you'll physically get better and you'll mentally get better so culturally speaking i do hope we kind of have a return to the pendulum in the united states to where People do actually want to work like hell and strive to be the best they can be in every way. And something I always implore the people around me to do, just work like hell and you can do it. More often than not, the person who's most limiting you is the person you see every day in the mirror, which is a cliche quote in and of itself. But 
I digress. Now, other interesting cultural news, you have major companies firing their chief diversity officers. Now, in terms of the economy and where businesses traditionally make cuts, it shouldn't be too controversial, too much of a surprise, especially when businesses are growing as well. Usually the last thing they think about is human resources. That department is more like an afterthought for many startups, especially because you literally have to work like hell, 105 hours a week to actually grow the business, increase the sales so you can keep the company growing, make it profitable. And of course have long-term profitable endeavor where you can service your customers and your employees and have it be a win-win for everyone. Now, it's fascinating in that for years, this was one of the hottest topics, especially the Fortune 500 companies. They went out and they all got chief diversity officers. And I, there were a couple of advantages in terms of, a lot of them used it for a marketing mechanism for recruiting as well as banking industries to get more investments. In, I think there are many reasons why they did this. There's also the DEI scores or diversity equity inclusion scores, which is a measurement. And you have, you have many scores and many reasons behind why businesses made the cognitive decision to invest in this type of personnel. Now, the detriment is basically the cost. A lot of these folks are chief diversity officers. The chief is in the title. You're not gonna get that under six figures. And you're talking a quarter million dollars or more. It's the same level as a CEO or a CIO or chief information officer or chief information security officer or chief financial officer. It's one of those things where it is a big cost to that. And Interestingly enough, this is coming after more and more of these companies. You saw Disney, Netflix, and I believe one or two more of the major media companies, they got rid of their DEI, and rather their, um, they got rid of their chief diversity officers. The same companies are also bleeding fiscally. They're having a lot of fiscal troubles at the time. A good, I would say a good piece of advice that my mentor gave me years back is, the safest job is usually sales. Now, there are risks, because if you don't sell, you're gonna get put on a performance plan or fired, but in terms of a business stability, more often than not, an overwhelming majority of the time, the last thing they will ever touch or cut are sales benefits as sales job itself. That's why if you ever hear about a company where they're actually cutting the sales staff, you should be worried like hell. I saw this, we all saw this with Circuit City. They used to have great sales reps who were incentivized to sell products. They changed their business model where they said no more commissions. When you say no more commissions, all the true sales reps who believe in themselves and they know they can make more money on commission versus a salary, they left Circuit City and their sales dropped tremendously. As a wise man might say, say that's the writing on the wall. And I think it's a similar situation here. So some companies, they're counting on the DEI to weigh in on many things, including human resources. But oddly enough, I've been reading more and more articles where they're consulting these individuals for product development, marketing efforts, which, it sounds like a little bit of an outlier, depending on what the product is, I'm not sure how much it warrants that input. I don't know how much added value, fiscally speaking, that input is if you're developing a new widget or something that, a product that can be enjoyed by everyone. It doesn't need to be tailored based on a demographic, like beer, Bud Light. <laughs> That's a joke, because they got involved in politics, shot themselves in the foot with a 50 cal, and their stock dropped $28 billion, and they're also after 20 years of being the number one beer, they're no longer the number one beer. They're number 14 by one of the last reports that I read. But it's also interesting where DEI has also become a political issue and chief diversity officers is becoming a political lightning rod. There are actually, there are people who are boycotting companies specifically because they either have a chief diversity officer or they hired a chief diversity officer. You saw this even with Chick-fil-A. That was, you didn't see a huge boycott, but they got 
a lot of negative press from, I guess, traditionally, politically speaking, people on the right, where they wondered, why is this, you know, faith-based faith company, I believe it's still family-owned, still family owned, why do they need a chief diversity officer? Is it because, do they need to increase their ESG score? Do they need to increase their DEI score? They're not publicly traded. How much relationship do they have with the financial industry where that's where, that's another equation where those scores come into account. And some of the customers felt betrayed just because they hired that person. So it has become a controversial thing in and of itself just to have someone in that. Now keep in mind, even if you get rid of the chief diversity officer, you still have human resources and their whole job is to hire new talent. And many of them are incentivized to have a diverse talent pool. Hopefully it's also diversity of opinion, but I think in terms of my three cents, that's vital as well for companies to succeed. But it is interesting to see after years of these being the forefront of many financial magazines, many companies proudly using it as a marketing vessel. Now they're quietly cutting those costs and getting rid of those positions. Is this the pendulum swinging back to what was the traditional business model of just hire the best person for the job given their qualifications? Or is it pendulum swinging more towards just the traditional business methodology? Why now are they starting to move away from this position? It'll be interesting to see, do, are these people rehired at other companies? Do they join the, the public sector? Will Fortune 500 companies still put a premium on having this on their front page of their website? That's what I'll be interested to see is, how does this change the function of the company if, if there is any impact on the business at all? Does this help them? Well, it's certainly gonna make them more profitable in terms of those costs associated with those people are gone, but will it have any big impact on the business? If it doesn't, then fiscally speaking, the argument can certainly be made that the position was redundant to begin with. Many people are already echoing that, and there are even some stockholders asking those questions as well. It'll be interesting to see where they fall and how businesses do adapt. Now, other interesting cultural news, you have Dil Mulvaney, astronomical speaking fee, critiqued. Now, a little bit of background on Dil Mulvaney in case you've been living under a rock or in Iowa. Just kidding, I'm, I'm, not, I'm proud of Iowan. But, is an instance where Dylan Mulvaney had most famously came to the forefront um, for having Dylan's initiative of 365 days of being a woman, where Dylan dressed up in women's clothing, being a biological man. And every day, Dylan would put out a, vid a video where it'd be something stereotypical, I would say pejorative, against women, where I believe one time Dylan went to a forest wearing high heels and dressed in women's clothing. And then I, did, I did some market research. I asked uh, my mom, my sister, does that ever, do, do you guys do that? Do you guys go into the forest on the weekends in, in high heels and prance around? And of course they said, no, that, that no woman actually does that. Same for many of the activity, activities that Dylan highlighted. But in terms of marketing, brilliant. Dylan got million dollar endorsements from the largest brands on the planet, including of his um, Ulta makeup company. I think that was a million dollar check right there. You had Nike, another, one of the largest brands in history. Nike gave Dylan a bra and Dylan wore the bra, got paid to take a picture of Dylan. And there was, wasn't too much of a boycott against them. Now, you might notice I'm using Dylan's name more than you could possibly want it to ever hear it. But it's because on YouTube, they actually will pull the videos based on the wrong pronouns. And I say wrong pronouns because biologically, those are different pronouns than what Dylan prefers, which is part of the mental game and is also a political issue and a point of debate for many people. It also reminds me of 1984. Again, do not, I was gonna say, do not make this a drink game because I reference it too much. It's a brilliant book by George Orwell 
which every American should read. Everyone should read it because it's actually a little sad that reality is worse than the book. But in the book, they actually electrocute the main character again and again and again until he acquiesced and he actually will say 2 plus 2 equals 5. They broke his mind so that he would say that. Even though he knew it wasn't the truth, they broke him. So there's a lot of parallels. I would never make that. Uh, I would certainly never make that analogy. But many people feel it's a similar situation. So that's why you might find this line of vernacular a little bit more awkward than usual. I don't want the video get, to get pulled. I'll eventually probably post a unedited, unedited video on Rumble as we continue to diversify the channel. But that's why this conversation sounds ridiculously awkward. Well, I guess not conversation, this speech. But that's a little background on who Dylan Mulvaney is. Also, famously got the Bud Light endorsement, a little can with Dylan's face on it. That happened April 1st, not a joke. And that's when there's a big boycott. Bud Light lost $28 billion in stock valuation in like two months. After 20 years of being the number one selling beer, they're now dropped precipitously. Modelo beat them both for May and June. I guarantee you it's going to be July as well. And even with Bud Light giving away a beer with a rebate that's the same cost as the beer. Now, Dylan is now transitioning, not basically, but to a new role, apparently. Now, it looks like Dylan wants to do college, go on a college tour. Now, business-wise, that's brilliant. Every college is going to pay and worship Dylan. Look at the demographics of who works on college campuses, who attends colleges. It's going to be a great fiscal opportunity. Now, ironically, or somewhat, some might say ironically, Dylan is giving a speech, and the speeches in which the topic that they're going to be covering is going to be about female empowerment. Again, just to clarify, Dylan is a biological man who identifies as a woman. Some women find that offensive, which is why there's more controversy around this topic to begin with, and some men also find this offensive as well. Now, it looks like Dylan did a one-off engagement at the University of Pittsburgh for $26,250, which is fascinating to think that I do this for free for now. Click the subscribe button, greatly appreciate it. $26,250 for one speech. Great ROI. Now, when the publicist, that was a one-off, so some people reached out to Dylan's publicist. It looks like the average speaking engagement is gonna be $40,000, which, wow, that's a lot of money in it. Talk about a brilliant ROI. And the colleges will 110% embrace this person, and Dylan's gonna make I wouldn't be surprised if Dylan made a million dollars in the next 12 months just from college speaking engagements. Colleges are famously 99% staffed by liberals. I know this is a little bit of a dated book, but Ben Shapiro wrote a brilliant book by the name of, which one is on the shelf? Uh, I think it is The Right Side of History or How to Destroy America in, in Three Easy Steps. Or Facts Don't Care About Their Feelings. He has many brilliant books that sometimes they merge into the kind of crossover, but one of his books talks about how college campuses, which hundreds of years ago used to be where people go to discuss ideas and philosophies and really engage and learn, and now they're just kind of indoctrination centers where all the polls show when you actually ask teachers what their beliefs are, it's over 97% liberal. So ironically enough, the college campuses who say they brace and love diversity, no, not diversity of thought, that's not the kind they're talking about. And anecdotally speaking, even going to college in Iowa, I noticed many of my teachers were far leftist. There were a couple conservatives, but it was almost like, it was a cliche to say that the college, uh, the uh, cause of conservative, they don't really promulgate their ideals because they know they'll be ostracized immediately by society. So in terms of a business move, Dylan is right on the point here. Dylan will make that money. In terms of 
some people are saying it's an astronomical amount, which based on Dylan's content, I would agree with just because many of the things that he, Dylan is saying, I just, I, I wouldn't pay to see it. It's, I'm not the core demographic of what, of what Dylan's trying to reach. But in terms of a speaking fee, you look at Ben Shapiro, who is a famous conservative commentator. He's also the co-owner of The Daily Wire, one of the largest, fastest-growing conservative media companies headquartered out in Nashville, Tennessee. I think they're up to a million paid subscribers, which is astronomically successful for alternative media and growing exponentially. Now, Ben Shapiro, when he goes on college campuses, he's conservative. Guess what happens to him? Not only do they have massive protests, I believe it was at Berkeley, they needed 900, 600 to 900 police officers just to secure the building and to protect him. Because the college students were that ignorant and that hateful. Some, some people even call him a Nazi, which he's an Orthodox Jewish man. He wears a yarmulke. But many people are blinded by hate and ignorance is bliss. Many of the leftists just say he's a Nazi, which is disgusting. He's actually, the, he's actually what was it? He was the victim. He's the number one victim of anti-Semitism, I believe it was 2019. And disgusting Nazis, people legitimately are that, that belief. They actually attacked him and the FBI has arrested them. So, needless to say, he's not what they portray him to be. And interesting enough, he, his speaking fee for uh, Ben Shapiro when he goes to college campuses is about $35,000. This is confirmed by the Young America's Foundation, which is a, I believe it's a 501c3 nonprofit. And their goal is to help diversify campuses with giving a voice to conservatives, which on college campuses is a rare thing. And I always think if you're on college campus, you should be absorbing different opinions to help grow and develop. Now, Ben Shapiro, $35,000, that's a so Dylan's only charging $5,000 more than Ben. So in terms of the average speaking fee, it's not too astronomical. I would argue the, quali the content quality would make it worth overpriced, but that's just me. From a business perspective and cultural perspective, colleges are going to love this initiative. They're going to eat it up. I would venture to say there's only two to three real conservative colleges these days. Even the ones who pretend to be religious, they're... Um, how do you say this? Diet Catholic or not really religious? And really, I mean, those institutions, they might have writing on the wall, but unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, charlatans in religion as well where they'll say one thing, but their actions are quite the opposite. So, culturally speaking, I think the college campuses are going to love this initiative. Dale's going to make an unfathomable amount of cash from speaking engagements. But we'll see. Maybe, maybe there'll be one college that declines or they says they don't want to do it. Time, I always say. Tell, shall tell. Going over to the political part of the podcast today, we have Trump indicted for trying to wipe a server. Now, apparently the Department of Justice has filed paperwork for Trump to be indicted for attempting to wipe a server. Now, server, well, pejoratively speaking, or simply simply put, a server is just like a, it's like a computer in a data center, or if you're Hillary Clinton in your bathroom, I believe. And it's where people go to get data and access data. I'm trying to think of how to give a rudimentary definition of a server, but think of it as a like your computer, but easier to access by many people. Now, famously, Hillary Clinton used a bleach bit to wipe her computer, and she had like 30 to 35,000 emails just disappear when she subpoenaed. She actually instructed her team to smash the, her phones with hammers, which in terms of data recovery doesn't always do it. But the DOJ famously said at the time when she was running for president that they didn't, think the op they didn't think the optics would be appropriate to go after a presidential nominee. They wanted to protect the institution um, of the process of having people vote for they want to vote for. So they said they weren't going to attack her or they weren't going to pro uh, prosecute her because she was running for office. That was the standard back then for people on the left. I can't help but notice now they're going after Trump. Again, which there's got to be some, in terms of merchandise, there's got to be some funny shirt about 
another day, another Trump indictment. We'll see how many of them actually stick. But it is kind of concerning when you're just jailing and persecuting your political opponents. Because right now, according to the polls, he's the number one nominee for, he's the number number one in the polls for the Republican nomination. Most likely, unless Ron DeSantis or one of the other contenders really changes their approach or does something drastically different, he will get the Republican nominee for the US presidency and he'll be running against most likely Biden. So especially concerning for those who actually value freedom and equality under the law, because again, Hillary was not prosecuted. Mike Pence, you had the issue with the papers not being stored in the right spot with declass, the classified documents. It wasn't just Trump who had that issue. You also had, you had Mike Pence, who was his VP. They didn't go after Mike Pence, interestingly enough, probably because I think he's more politically left than not. But you also had Hillary Clinton, you had Biden, you had Obama. I guess the moral story is we have way too many documents that are classified. Do they just classify everything? But I digress. They didn't go after anyone except for Trump. And it's one of those things where I think a lot of people in the middle and even on the left, they're wondering, why is there a double standard in this case? It certainly doesn't feel fair. For sure, Trump is the most bombastic character and he says a lot of crazy things. I would say that. But it doesn't seem fair where it seems like it's especially just blatant political targeting. This is perhaps the most prime example of it, where you literally have this innocence where Hillary Clinton did the same thing. They didn't go after her. So it'll be interesting to see, does this reinvigorate his base? Are more people in the middle going to go towards supporting Trump? If Trump wants to win this time around, he's going to need more people in the middle to go over to him. And it's one of those things where based on his, I would say he has some great exceptional policies, especially being a business owner, I appreciated many of them. But it's one of those things where he's very charged in terms of people who like Trump, love Trump. People who hate him, hate him fervently enough to perhaps, you know, do some unethical things with the election. I don't know if there's any, I would certainly never suggest that. Well, I guess now you can. YouTube changed that policy, oddly enough. Fascinating timing when they uh, changed that, where now you are allowed to question election as pretty much every election since the dawn of time has had some interference. The debate is, is the interference, the delta, is that difference enough to make a difference in the outcome? That's really the debate I think more people should be having. But it's one of those instances where he needs to win over more people in the middle. I think he should politically move on the chessboard. He needs to partner with someone who's less polarizing. Somewhat, I think Vivek could actually be a really good VP, Vivek Ramaswamy. He's a former entrepreneur. He built up a pharmaceutical company and he really has some exceptional knowledge and quantifiable knowledge actually reading documents by our founding fathers. But it'll be interesting to see what this indictment does for him. I suspect the people who already hate him, I don't know how many they're gonna win over. I think this indictment will further polarize the people who love him will love him even more. People in the middle might start to move a little bit, just noticing the discrepancies. It'll be interesting to see what this does to the polls. Or if he, if he is prosecuted, can he win from jail? There's a lot of people saying technically you could, which would be, I think Elon Musk said the most unusual and most, the most entertaining outcome is usually the one that happens. It'll be, that would certainly be entertaining to win from jail and pardon himself. That, that would be a first, I think. Now, other political news, you have the United States set to deliver Abrams tanks to Ukraine. Now, it looks like they're on track to, to actually send them over in September this year. And this is for, quote-unquote, counter-offensive operations, unquote. Which, all the marketing material I got shoved down my throat was that Ukraine was under attack and they were on the defensive. There's a big difference between not just the weaponry, but also the philosophy and the rhetoric by going on the offensive and going into Russian territory. It'll be interesting to see, does this sway public support? Will people still support them regardless? 
I notice there's a lot of flags on, a lot of Americans have Ukraine flags on their lawns. Ironically, the same people who I can't help but notice they sometimes don't have the American flag, but it'll be interesting to see, does this sway public opinion? Now, in regard to the specific technical of what kind of tanks, it looks like there is a plan to send a handful of Abrams tanks to Germany in August, where they'll be undergoing their final re refurbishments. Once the process is complete, the first batch of Abrams will be shipped to the Ukraine the following month. Now, the, Ukra the U.S. is actually sending the older M1A1 Abrams tank instead of the modern A2 version, which that would have taken, set, well, it looks like, over a year to get to Ukraine, which I think is a prudent business decision and political decision as well in terms of every time you're sending, well, is also historically speaking one of the most corrupt countries in, in the world. If you read AR, even on CNN and New York Times, they were talking about this before the, the uh, controversy with Russia. But every time you're sending gear into enemy lines, there is a big chance that gear will be caught by the opponent or the enemy, and they can reverse engineer that. That's whole industry actually in China, look at any technology, reverse engineering is a huge part of the industry over there. The same with weapons. If another country were to get their hands on the latest military technology, that'd be detrimental to our national security. That's one of the few things the United States is still exceptional at. We have the best engineers and defense contractors, bar none. You look at the stuff that they create, it's basically stuff out of Tony Stark's dreams. You look at Wraith, the largest defense contractors on the planet, Lockheed Martin, they are number one, headquartered in the United States, I believe Bethesda, Maryland. You got Raytheon, they make the, they famously made the Patriot missile. You have General Dynamics. You look at all the top defense contractors. The only one that isn't in the United States is VAE Systems, which is in the UK. They're mainly known for munitions as well as advanced tank armor and camouflage technologies, among other robotics. So the US has a pretty good position in that for that tech to get leaked or in the wrong hands, that'd be detrimental. So it's politically speaking, I think it is prudent to send the old version. You're still doing something, which some there, I guess some Americans are going to support, so they might get some more votes for them. It's I always debate how this is going to play out politically, or because it looks like well, most of the Republicans and most Democrats are still 110% behind these initiatives. But it'll be interesting to see if it becomes a political thing where you have more. I think one or two Republicans actually said something, which is a rare thing in and of itself. They questioned well, how does this help out mom and pop in middle America to send 100 billion dollars in cash as well as military gear to Ukraine. There's a, I, there's, I think it was one or two who actually had the temerity to ask a question. And I believe one of them actually asked for a basic accountability where they asked, hey, can we actually audit their books or you know see where the cash is going? So um, I think um, Rand Paul was, uh, or Ron Paul, the Pauls were the only one really asking questions, which I appreciate he's more libertarian. So time shall tell us where that goes. Other political news, you have the SEC Having a rule, that means companies must report cyber attacks in four days. Now, it'll be interesting to see how this is done in practice. And specifically, the United States Security Exchange Commission approved new rules that require publicly traded companies to publicize details of a cyber attack within four days of identify, identifying that it has a, quote, material impact on their finances, marking a major shift in how computer breaches are disclosed. Now, they also continue to say, quote, whether a company loses a factory in a fire or millions in files in a cybersecurity incident, it may be material to investors, unquote. This coming from the SEC chairman, Gary Gensler, which I do agree with. Now, Gary goes on to say, quote, currently many public companies provide cybersecurity disclosures to investors. I think companies and investors alike, however, would benefit if this disclosure were made in a more consistent, comparable, and useful way. 110% agree. Now, the key pivotal term that is going to be the topic of many litigation cases and 
I, I suspect, is the word material. They say they have to, within four days of identifying a material impact, which that's not, legally speaking, that's a terrible term because it's not quantifiable. And part of the issue is that it's hard to quantify some of these things. You look at Target when they were hacked, they had a huge drop in sales. It was, uh, it had to do, the hack was around credit cards and the consumer confidence dropped. So people are using cash. People who use cash, they spend less on average because they feel the money, it's more real to them than a card. Ironically, it's fiat money, so it's really not worth anything. But psychologically speaking, it is a phenomenon. And a lot of these companies don't have mechanisms to measure that. It's very hard to quantify. If you get hacked, let's say you have a purchase order and that customer stops. So instead of a company selling, I don't know, a thousand wristwatches for a thousand dollars, it gets found that they're hacked and the person who was, the company that was going to buy it from them canceled the order. In that case, there's a very quantifiable amount. Hey, they lost that specific sale. However, how many sales or prospective sales did they have in their sales pipeline where they are having conversation with the retailers that says they're going to buy their watches and because of that perception, they're no longer having those conversations. Some would argue that was a decrease in sales because of that brand reputation loss. But there's not an exact equation you can put in there because it affects every business differently. Some businesses get hacked and no one cares. Panera Bread famously was hacked. Yeah, consumer data actually got broken into. And it's hilarious. No one cared. They were actually jokes on the internet saying, I'll laugh out loud. Someone will know my favorite sandwich or bread bowl or whatever they sell at that carbohydrate factory. But you have other instances of hacking where the, knee, the businesses were basically kneecapped. Target lost millions upon millions of dollars because people shop there less and not at all because of that specific hack. Then you have to ask yourself, what, how much does it damage the brand? So there's a lot of things that you can't really quantify, but I do agree Cyber attacks are a huge impact. I also own a tech company that mainly does cyber security, topic technologies. But it's one of those hard things where we'll have prospective clients ask, well, what's the CFO wants to know what's the ROI? Well, it's hard to say. We could tell you the average cost of a breach in the past 12 months. There, there are studies that show that if you get hacked, this is the average cost you'll incur. But that doesn't tell you the cost of the brand, which as cliche as it sounds, there is a huge astronomical value to a brand of a business and that can be hard to quantify so it'll be interesting to see as this rule rolls out will it be contended in court where they say well this specific instance we didn't think it was going to have a material impact so a couple things to roll out but it'll be interesting to see i'm sure some invest investors of course are going to appreciate appreciate more transparency and i think as businesses become more and more tech savvy and they're more and more dependent on technology it's almost a cliche to say but every business is a tech business they just don't know it yet because it helps propel the business. It's not just what it used to be back in the day where it was kind of thought of as a sunk cost or kind of a necessary thing just to have on, like keeping the lights on. Now it's the cornerstone and sometimes the center of the business. So it'll be interesting to see as investors start to take that into account, how this new political rollout will take place. Now, going over to the business blunder of the day, we have Trader Joe's having a recall yet again. Now, Trader Joe's, if, in case you haven't never been there, it's a Fancy, pinky high, you know, la-di-da grocery store, mainly known for having organic foods. They're great, tasty foods. I, I used to leave my, if, every once in a while as a kid, you'd have those special moments where my, par we, my parents would go there for, at least every once in a while we'd go there. And it was a cool experience. Actually, it was a great customer experience. It's a clean store, got fresh food, very fancy, but it's not necessary. It's a luxury, not a necessity. 
which in the United States, many people forget to delineate the two, but I digress on the topic for another time. And when it comes to Trader Joe's, them being a more premium brand, they should be worried about every recall. And they've had more than I could count this year. I believe this, oh, I should say, more than an average American mathematics student could count. That being four to five. Now, last week, I actually just reported that they had a recall due to having rocks in their cookies. Yes, literally rocks were in the cookies. Parts, and may suspect, well, that helps with their weight because products for food, they're not measured by how many cookies are in there. It's the weight of the cookies. So, although the people appreciate it because it's, you know, cookies are, I was going to say, usually rocks are locally sourced and they're organic. So, you know, it's a lopsided for the people who usually shop there. But it doesn't make the brand look smart. It makes it look low class to have such big issues in their quality control with their suppliers. Now, specifically with this one, it looks like it is affecting their broccoli cheddar soup. And again, this is an expensive soup that you don't need. It's a premium product. And it looks like it affected soups in seven states. And in terms of reported cases, there have been 10,889 cases reported to the FDA. That's a huge deal. Not just from a PR perspective, that's a little under 11,000 end users had a negative experience with their brand. Now, it is somewhat, somewhat a little bit disappointing or depressing to think about human psychology, but when it comes to public relations, if someone has an exceptionally good experience with a store or a business, they might, on average, tell, I believe they average tell people, they'll tell 0.94%, or they'll tell one person. On average, if they have a great experience, they'll tell one person. If they have a negative experience, on average, they'll tell six to seven people. Negativity spreads like a disease when it comes to these types of customer engagements. So not only is that about 11,000 people directly had a bad experience with Trader Joe's, think about all of them who have family and friends. They're telling a lot of people about this. And I can't help but see the quality of Trader Joe's just drip precipitously throughout this past couple of months. Now, it looks like this recall was initiated by the product's manufacturer, Winter Garden Quality Foods of New Oxford, Pennsylvania. Somewhat of an ironic name that their name is literally quality foods when they have bugs in it. So the issue is that this food has bugs in it. Wow. Now, in terms of going green, perhaps that's just, perhaps they were an early adopter. There's a lot of conspiracy theories. Oh, it's not conspiracy theory, it's real. There's actually a lot of reports by, um, you know, the Davos and the uh, World Economic Forum where they see bugs as a good source of protein and people should be eating it more and more. It's a meme that people say is, you'll, you will eat the bugs, you'll own nothing and be happy, which used to be a conspiracy, but it's actually been publicly stated. So perhaps Trader Joe's just got the early memo about this new initiative of forcing everyone to eat the bugs, which, personally, grass-fed beef, you'll never beat that. Or good salmon. Good salmon is quite delicious from time to time. But perhaps Trader Joe's is just ahead of the curve with this initiative, or they got the memo a little bit early. But I, I digress. It's one of those things where if your brand is a premium grocery store, to have an issue where you have bu bugs unintentionally in the food, maybe it'll make that delineation, it certainly doesn't make you look premium. It just makes your brand look more and more rudimentary and just, they can't even do the simple things as quality control. So we'll see how much this affects their sales as they continue to make all these issues, but having bugs in your soup, that's, that's gotta be the business blunder of the day. Thank you everyone for taking the time to tune in. We're trying to get to 3,000 subscribers by the end of August, so I'd really appreciate you taking the time to click that subscribe button. Also, taking the time to comment and like the video really helps it out. It gets shared more and more. The more engagement we'll have, the more we'll be able to invest in the channel, get better production. I appreciate the feedback especially. 
Also, don't forget to tell your family, tell your friends, tell your coworkers. Heck, tell your enemies, tell anyone and everyone. Just stay safe and fight the good fight.